High schoolers are busy, but no one's too busy to help fight cancer. The Leukemia and Lymphoma Society is looking for their next student visionaries of the year. Could that be your child? High schoolers who participate in this seven-week philanthropic leadership development program gain valuable life skills like project management, communication, financial literacy, and entrepreneurship. Forming strong teams behind them, they fundraise for the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society in honor of a pediatric blood cancer survivor right in their local community. Most importantly, this campaign is an opportunity for high schoolers to engage in meaningful work within their community and make a real impact on the lives of blood cancer patients and their families. Sound like something your child might be interested in? You can learn more about Student Visionaries of the Year or even nominate a student at lls.org students. That's lls.org slash students. Knowing how to speak and understand a new language can be an invaluable tool when traveling, meeting new friends, or just even to master a new skill. But it's not always simple when you're bogged down by textbooks and structure classes. That's why so many people trust Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program available on desktop or as an app. It truly immerses you in the language you want to learn, like Spanish, French, Italian, Chinese, and more. You won't just be studying English translations. The Rosetta Stone intuitive process helps you pick up a language naturally, first with words, then phrases, then sentences. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com rs10. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com rs10 today. Welcome to another episode of You Must Remember This, the podcast dedicated to exploring the secrets and or forgotten histories of Hollywood's first century. I'm your host, Karina Longworth, and this is another installment of our ongoing series, Erotic 90s. I have seen one or two things in my life, but never, never anything like this. This episode is about a movie that came out in the summer of 1993, but the story starts in the fall of 1991 with the annual Movie Line magazine, Sex Issue. Patrick Swayze was on the cover promoting Point Break with the pull quote, 
I hate being a sex symbol. What can I tell you? Being on the cover of a sex issue protesting that you hated being a sex symbol was very 90s. As was a whiplash-inducing editorial on page 20 of the magazine by William Stadium, headlined, Sex is Back. Quote, With the advent of AIDS, the sexual revolution that had raged into the disco inferno of the 70s, petered out into a state of non-affairs that was known far and wide as the new celibacy. People stopped doing it. After a decade, however, the failure of AIDS to explode into the heterosexual community has somehow signaled the passage of a sexual statute of limitations. Today, people in Hollywood are doing it again, on screen and off, and talking about it as well, with a gusto reminiscent of that attendant to the repeal of prohibition almost 60 years ago. Stadium cites the recent successes of Pretty Woman and Ghost as proof that sex is back, and then looks ahead to another film that was about six months away from release. It's notable that the most expensive script of all time is Basic Instinct, a major kinky sex fest starring Michael Douglas, which, at least in script form, jettisoned the latex coyness of Julia Roberts, offering a Whitman sampler of condoms to her Prince Charming and Pretty Woman. Sex, once again, is out of the closet. It's interesting to use the phrase out of the closet when what you're really talking about is movies about straight men who we don't see using condoms. But whatever, the stadium's real proof that Hollywood had returned to pre-AIDS levels of sexual recklessness came in this antidote about his social life. The girls of the endless summer were out in force, dressed to the nines, some might say 69s, at a recent Gatsby-esque lawn party that was the perfect symbol of Hollywood's return to the boudoir. The host was Robert Evans. Evans, the quintessential Hollywood bon vivant and playboy legend, had disappeared, gone the way of all flesh. But now here was Evans, resurrected with a multiple packed at Paramount, and here was the flesh, enough dazzling starlets to raise the ghost of Harry Cohn. It was genuine cause for celebration. Robert Evans was back. Sex was back. Robert Evans was an icon of the late 60s and early 70s, the peak years of the sexual revolution, who had flamed out in the late 70s. Maybe not coincidentally, around the time his friend and Chinatown collaborator Roman Polanski fled the country to avoid imprisonment for rape. Evans was convicted of cocaine trafficking in 1980, and three years later, a woman he had dated was implicated in the death of Roy Radden, a money guy who wanted to be credited as a producer on The Cotton Club, which at one point Evans had hoped to direct himself. Evans said that the Cotton Club murder scandal had brought him so low, both emotionally and financially, that he checked himself into a hospital in order to stop himself from committing suicide. That was in 1989, 
when Evans had inked his five-year deal to make movies for Paramount two years later, he admitted to Variety, I've been waiting for this for more than a decade. This feels like coming home. This issue of Movie Line describing Evans' welcome back party would have been printed before November 1991, when Magic Johnson announced his HIV diagnosis, temporarily shocking some straight people into a renewed fear of sex, which we've already discussed this season. But just like how years into our current pandemic, there is both a constant drumbeat of fear over new outbreaks and variants, and at the same time, a lot of COVID fatigue and a desire amongst some to live life like it can't happen to them, the alarm sounded by Johnson's diagnosis led to seemingly contradictory aftershocks. On the one hand, it created the perfect climate for films tying sex to danger or death, from the hand that rocks the cradle to single white female to, yes, basic instinct. These films were all influenced by viaporn, the genre coined to describe Brian De Palma's body double, which was more or less concurrent with the mainstreaming of AIDS, and yet AIDS itself was never mentioned in these movies. The wink-wink sublimation worked for a while, but like every Hollywood trend, this one eventually led to fatigue. We've talked about the diminishing returns of films like Consenting Adults and The Temp. As Stadium indicates, there was also fatigue amongst straights about AIDS and a fashionable rejection of safe sex culture as sexual terrorism. I found that phrase in Spin magazine, generally the Bible of mainstream quote-unquote alternative in the grunge era, which literally announced itself as such with its April 1993 issue which was centered around a glossary of the A to Z of alternative culture. A was for AIDS, and the entry downplayed the threat it posed to spin readers. Quote, don't believe the hype. No one knows what causes AIDS. We did know what caused AIDS in 1993, but spin editor Celia Farber was to that health crisis what someone who is just asking questions today is to COVID. That same magazine included two Farber pieces putting forth AIDS skepticism, one in the letter from the editor slot and the other a reported piece on the AIDS crisis in Africa. At a time when MTV and magazines like Spin were platforming so-called alt-culture, alt included just as much dangerous conspiracy theory then as it does today. But back to movie line. In running this essay in their 1991 sex issue and tying the attempted comeback of Robert Evans to the idea that the 70s were back, sexually speaking, movie line was ahead of the curve in predicting that basic instinct would strike a chord. But as we've discussed already, basic instinct was impossible to replicate. That would become clear from the first film of Robert Evans's 90s comeback. Sliver reunited the star of Basic Instinct, Sharon Stone, with the film's screenwriter, Joe Esterhaus. Evans brought the project to Paramount, 
where Philip Noyce, who was hot off of that studio's Patriot Games, was hired to direct. But despite being about sex and murder and including some of the same personnel, Sliver was a very different movie than Basic Instinct. It was almost the opposite movie, at least in terms of its gender dynamics. And though the reteaming of Stone and Esterhaus would prove to be once again combustible, this time the things that combusted were two marriages. And to some extent, the commercial viability of the mainstream studio film about an adult woman's sex life. Join us, won't you, for part 12 of Erotic 90s. Okay, quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. Obvious. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. So to reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessed from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. And you're improving efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. Back by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash remember. netsuite.com slash remember. netsuite.com slash remember. I'm Lauren Sherman, the writer behind Puck's fashion and beauty memo line sheet. And I'd like to welcome you to my new show, Fashion People. On every episode of Fashion People, I'll be talking to insiders about the stuff we're all whispering between the press releases. From M&A rumors to celebrity stylist dish to the future of legacy media. Be sure to follow and listen to Fashion People, a presentation of Odyssey in partnership with Puck. Available on the free Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. Basic Instinct may have been unreplicable, but before there was hard box office data on that, no one could stop talking about its impact. A full year after the movie opened in theaters, People magazine put Sharon Stone on their cover as the face of a trend of female stars like Shannon Doherty, Sean Young, and Madonna, who the tabloid insisted were united by their abject refusal to play by the old rules. Or, as Stone was quoted in the story, if you have a vagina and a point of view, that's a deadly combination. Something is happening in Hollywood, observed people. The studios still may not be making movies with great women's roles, but lately, 
A gang of bright and beautiful actresses have adopted a take-no-prisoners stance on life, love, and career. And they are emerging as Hollywood's latest breed of badass. Women with heaps of attitude and absolutely no regrets. That same exact week, Time magazine ran a piece by Richard Corliss called A Few Good Women, in which several women in Hollywood argued that the answer to that lack of roles should not be celebrating bad girls, which the women quoted in the story seemed to think was bad for women in general. The harshest words came from Callie Curry, who had won an Oscar for writing Thelma and Louise just days after Basic Instinct's smash opening weekend. Hollywood is trying to re-sexualize its women back into submission, Corey began. The whole idea that women are powerful because they're sexy is a crock. Sex isn't power. Money is power. But the women who do the best in this society are the ones who are the most complacent in the role of women as sexual commodity be it Madonna, Julia Roberts, or Sharon Stone. If Stone hadn't spread her legs, would Basic Instinct have done as well as it did? We don't know if Corey was aware at this point that Stone had said she had not consented to exposing her vagina when she spread her legs in Basic Instinct. Certainly, that had been reported already. Whether she was aware of it or not, It was not uncommon at this point in history for some women who considered themselves feminists to attack other women as traitors to the cause, which could lead those who felt attacked to, understandably, become defensive. Sharon Stone dealt with hostility from feminists by serving up her own version of feminism. Premier Magazine, which called her the first post-Madonna cinema sex goddess of the 90s, observed that Stone, quote, proclaims her feminist ideals even as she waxes seductive, in a most charming and tongue-in-cheek way, mind you, to smooth ordinary business encounters. So this was a moment in which it was still considered contradictory to call oneself a feminist or celebrate some feminist ideals while also using one's beauty and sexuality to make life a little easier. Stone's media blitz incurred backlash from both sides. Feminists who were not named Camille Paglia saw Stone as colluding with the enemy, selling out the male gaze and allowing herself to be exploited for a dollar. Other critics and publications who would not have identified as feminists in fact, who saw feminism as a dirty word, complained that she was shameless, aggressive, not feminine, and, of course, crazy. When she was on the cover of Esquire in March 1995, the story would be headlined, Is Sharon Stone scaring you yet? Men fear her, wrote Belzeem, and justifiably so. She is feral and forthright, quick and cunning. Often she appears simply nuts. I told her that Hollywood executives now call her Sharon Stones. Because I have the biggest balls in Hollywood, she surmised correctly, 
That's good. The longer they stay scared, the longer I have a job. That profile would acknowledge on its first page that Stone is the only female movie star left who knows how to be a movie star. But only after a long paragraph of gibberish about how she is known for her ability to have sex, or at least portray a naked woman having sex while filmed by a camera crew. In an interview that appeared in Us magazine two months after Curry attacked her for spreading her legs in basic instinct, Stone recontextualized the interrogation scene as a subversion of what Curry had referred to as women as sexual commodity. Quote, In that scene, I was mirroring male behavior. You know how men are always forever grabbing their crotches? At a baseball game, a man can grab his crotch 42,000 times and nobody gives a shit. But when I owned my sexuality on screen, as opposed to prancing across the screen in the nude and being a sex object or being slashed to bits as a victim, the world stood still. I think that requires greater thought than whether or not doing it made me some kind of pop icon. I think what we need to address here is why is it so controversial for a woman to own her own sexuality? These statements about owning her sexuality might seem in conflict with Stone's insistence, from the beginning, that Verhoeven had tricked her into exposing herself in basic instinct. But how is she supposed to react when, though she had put the onus for that scene on Verhoeven, the culture, and individual critics like Curry persisted in shifting the responsibility away from the male director and on to the female performer. Stone was consistent in saying that she thought the kind of sex she simulated in Basic Instinct was ludicrous, a male fantasy that had no applicability to real life. She said it while promoting the movie, and she kept saying it. I have to straighten out my karma, she told Premiere Magazine in 1993. I've become a sex symbol, which is an absurd thing for me. Particularly since I symbolize a kind of sex I don't believe in. Stone may not have looked like the perfect feminist ally to a critic like Curry, but she showed commitment to talking about these ideas in venues her sexual persona gave her access to. Venues where she had a captive audience of men. Playboy put her on the cover of their December Sex Stars of 1992 issue and ran an extensive interview inside in which David Sheff introduced Stone as the proprietor of the most famous pubis aureus on the planet. It had been 17 months since her last Playboy cover, not quite Bo Derrick's 1980 run of two covers five months apart, but for the sexually chaotic 90s, this was still a certain sign of the sex symbol status that Stone said she didn't believe in. Playboy's chef asked Stone how playing Catherine Trammell had changed her personality. I'll tell you how it changed me, she responded. I received a fan letter from a woman who said, Thank you for your performance. I will never be a victim again. It did that for me, too. Women are taught to acquiesce in ways that chip away at our self-esteem, 
our integrity, and our femininity. I won't give that away so easily anymore. If you think I should, you better give me a damn good reason why. If I make such a choice in my life now, it'll be my choice. I won't bend now just to get someone to like me or to avoid confrontation. This quote feels important for two reasons. For one thing, it's indicative of what became Stone's public persona post-basic instinct, which was confrontational and was, in many ways, a projection of strength that seemed to say that women didn't have to be vulnerable to shitty men if they chose not to be. At the same time, the acquiescence she speaks to, the ways women are expected to make themselves smaller to make themselves more likable, this is super relevant to the character she plays in Sliver in a way that makes that film make sense, not as a follow-up to Basic Instinct, but as a kind of prequel to it. If Stone had had her way, Sliver wouldn't have even been her follow-up to Basic Instinct. Stone had wanted to star opposite Mike Myers in So I Married an Axe Murderer, his post-Wayne's World lark in which he played both a San Francisco beat poet and, in heavy prosthetics, the poet's Scottish dad. Stone also wanted to play a dual role, Myers' love interest, as well as her psychotic sister. But the studio wouldn't go for it, preferring to cast two other actresses, rather than have Stone play both. Then Stone turned down the wife role in In the Line of Fire and the girlfriend part in Wolf after that script was rewritten and she felt it lost its source of humor. The months that elapsed after the success of Basic Instinct only increased her perceived value. At this moment, Stone's name is the one most dropped on the film executive's cellular telephone network one reporter claimed. But she needed to make something. Though she had fired her agents and traded up after Basic Instinct, she had nothing in the can awaiting release. Nor did she have a nest egg. I didn't have a job and I couldn't make my house payments, she later said. Stone initially turned down Sliver, thinking it was too much like Basic Instinct. Compared to So I Married an Axe Murderer, maybe that's true but Robert Evans kept needling her. He claimed that she finally said yes only when he told her Gina Davis was interested. Evans later admitted that Gina Davis hadn't even been in the running. When Stone finally signed on to Sliver after months of debating her next move, her patience paid off. She would be paid $2.5 million plus a cut of the gross, more than eight times what she had made for Basic Instinct. Joe Esterhaus wrote in his book that Stone had agreed to do the film on one condition. Here is an excerpt from the Hollywood Animal audiobook read by Eric Bogosian. Sharon's condition was simple, flat, and non-negotiable. Evans could not go to the set of his own movie when Sharon Stone was filming. She did not want to be around Robert Evans. Sharon did not want to cast her eyes on Robert Evans, and since the biggest stars in the world always get what they want, Paramount had happily agreed to Sharon's condition. The problem was a girl in a dog collar. According to Sharon, a friend of hers from her modeling days wound up as one of Bob's house bimbos. 
According to Sharon, Bob supposedly kept the young woman naked and in a dog collar for weeks at a time. Sharon said that her friend needed psychiatric care for months after leaving the Evans' house. According to Evans, Sharon's story was whole cloth fiction. He was enraged. You talk to any girl who's ever been in this house, Bob said. There are no dog collars here. This isn't that kind of a house. I felt he had a point. The girls that I had met in Bob's house all seemed very fond of him, treating him like a classic Hollywood daddy. She can't kick me off my own set, Evans raged. Who the fuck does she think she is? A dog collar? The name is Evans. Robert Evans, not the Marquis de Sod. Sharon, however, was adamant and unyielding, and as the shoot began, Evans was not allowed to go within 100 yards of his own set. Evans seemed determined to produce Stone, even if he couldn't step foot on set. The actress and Billy Baldwin did not get along. I mean, Billy's 29 and seems so young, Stone later commented. I come from Pennsylvania, where guys are just sort of regular. No bullshit. They're the guy, you're the girl. He plays a character that was very weird. But I never got up to speed on his deal, like whether he was, I'm in character or I'm out of character. There is a story of a meeting Evans requested with Stone to talk about this that appears in a book about Sherry Lansing. Stone tells the same story in her own book, but omits the names. Here is the story from Stone's audiobook. I had a producer bring me to his office where he had malted milk balls in a little milk carton type container under his arm with the spout open. He walked back and forth in his office with the balls falling out of the spout and rolling all over the wood floor. As he explained to me why I should fuck my co-star so that we could have on-screen chemistry. Why, in his day, he made love to Ava Gardner on screen, and it was so sensational. Now, just the creepy thought of him in the same room with Ava Gardner gave me pause. Then I realized that she also had to put up with him and pretend that he was in Anyway, interesting. I watched the chocolate balls rolling around thinking, you guys insisted on this actor when he couldn't get one whole scene out in the test. Now, you think if I fuck him, he will become a fine actor? Nobody's that good in bed. I felt they could have just hired a co-star with talent someone who could deliver a scene and remember his lines. I also felt they could fuck him themselves and leave me out of it. It was my job to act, and I said so. <sighs> this was not a popular response. I was and am considered difficult. Naturally, I didn't you-know-what, my co-star. He was baffled enough without me confusing him some more. But he did make a few haphazard passes at me in the upcoming weeks. I'm sure spurred on by this genius. Maybe it was due to a change in perspective about the material, 
or to changes she inspired or requested once she signed on, or maybe it was just bullshit. But by the time she had to do press for Sliver, Stone was quite capable of explaining how she thought the movie would straighten out her sex symbol karma. In one interview, Stone said that if basic instinct appealed to male fantasies, quote, Sliver will maybe be more for women. In Sliver, I play this regular girl. I gained 15 pounds. I didn't have to be an anorexic size six in some fabulous outfits. And when it came time to do the sex scenes, it was important to me that they be addressed in a way that women actually feel about sex. A sense of comfort and affinity instead of objectification and anger. I figured that as long as I've gotten labeled as this sex symbol, which seems a sort of peculiar label to begin with, that I'd like to speak about a sexuality that seemed more compassionate and real to me. Because, you know, it's my turn. In another interview, she said, I suppose something so sexually direct, yet so non-exhibitionistic, is going to unsettle people. But you know how it is with sexuality. My mom said it best when she said that the shocking thing about basic instinct was that people were more concerned whether or not I was homosexual than whether or not I was a psychotic killer. This episode is brought to you by MUBI, the curated streaming service dedicated to elevating great cinema from around the globe. Every film on MUBI is hand-selected by real people who really love movies, so you get films from iconic directors, from emerging auteurs. There's always something new to discover. And coming up in May, here's something to discover. Gasoline Rainbow, the latest film from the Ross Brothers. They are the acclaimed directors behind another great film you might have seen called Bloody Nose, Empty Pockets. Gasoline Rainbow is about five teens from Inland, Oregon, who pile into a van with a busted taillight to get to a place they've never seen, the Pacific Coast. New York Magazine called it, quote, an ecstatic road trip movie, and that just about sums it up. Gasoline Rainbow opens in U.S. theaters May 10th, and then you can stream it exclusively on Mubi starting May 31st. Best of all, right now you can try Mubi free for 30 days at Mubi.com slash YMRT. That's M-U-B-I dot slash YMRT for a whole month of great cinema for free. Take the ride. In the first scene of Sliver, a woman who looks like Sharon Stone, but is not Sharon Stone, comes home to her luxury high-rise apartment. A shadowy figure wearing gloves enters her apartment with a key. She greets him like she knows him. He then throws her over the balcony and she falls many stories to her death, crashing through a greenhouse roof. This opening announces director Philip Noyce's two primary influences, Hitchcock, but also the hand that rocks the cradle. Hitchcock is what the film aspires to creatively, but everyone involved would have been thrilled if Sliver had had hand that rocks the cradle size, commercial success, and cultural impact. Surely everyone was also thinking of Rosemary's Baby, one of producer Evans's signature hits, which, like Sliver, had been based on an Ira Levin novel and was about a cursed Manhattan apartment building. But Sliver feels less like Rosemary's Baby than, like, if Ghostbusters was centered on the Sigourney Weaver character and her neighbor was not Rick Moranis, but Billy Baldwin at the peak of physical perfection. 
For me, these are reasons to kind of love it while still acknowledging the ways in which it doesn't work, even if I think it's ultimately more silly than problematic. Sharon Stone's Carly is a 35-year-old book editor who leaves an unhappy marriage and moves into an apartment in a sliver building, a Manhattan skyscraper that very unsubtly looks like a phallus piercing the sky. Her new neighbors keep telling her she looks just like the woman who used to live in her unit, who everyone thinks jumped off the balcony and died. Carly is emotionally fragile. We don't hear much about what happened in her marriage, other than that she feels like she's wasted her adult life up to this point. She apparently has a very weird relationship with her boss, played by Martin Landau, who takes her out to lunch and, instead of talking about the raise she asked for, tries to set her up with a bad boy crime novelist, played by Tom Berenger. He's an attractive man, isn't he? Alex, I ask you for a raise and you take me out to lunch and try to set me up. Jack Lansford, shred of evidence, flesh and blood, please proceed, Charles. Hasn't written anything in five or six years, but he made so much off of flesh and blood he doesn't have to. He's got a ranch in Montana. And speak of the devil. <laughs> Hello, Alex. Hi. I'm the devil. <laughs> Carla Norris. Hello. You look familiar to me. Maybe that's because I live in your building. Jack, Carly is a big fan of yours. She just mm. loves flesh and blood. Hey. I haven't read it. I'm sorry. Hey, you are, sir. She hasn't read me. Alex, why is it she hasn't read me? Everybody's read me. I'm easy to read. Well, I have it. She has better taste than I thought. <laughs> She'll read me, though. What if she doesn't like what she reads? Hi, Jack. You'll read me. I know you'll read me. Because you have good taste. You've lost her now, Jack. She likes being in control. So do I. See you around the neighborhood. Yeah. Alex? I spent seven years in a bad marriage, and you say I like being in control. But you ended it, didn't you? As if she's never spent a single night alone in an apartment that was all her own, she spends the first part of her first night after moving in putting golf balls into a coffee cup while wearing a button-down shirt over panties. As if this is what a bachelor would do. And then she takes a bath. And here we realize that Carly is not actually alone. Noyce cuts back and forth between his camera and the view from the surveillance camera embedded in the bathroom mirror as Carly masturbates. Then the director cuts to a command center, a weird curved room with dozens of monitors where Carly's neighbor Zeke, played by Baldwin, is watching tapes of all of Carly's interactions since she first entered the building. Everywhere Carly goes, men follow her. Primarily two men, her neighbors, Zeke and Jake. The novelist harasses her while jogging, 
while Zeke cons her into going to the gym with him. Jake is a type Carly has clearly encountered before. Older, pickled, openly chauvinistic, and she can see that he's bad news, or at least a headache. But she can't see Zeke's red flags because he's a type she's unfamiliar with. He's maybe 10 years her junior, a proto-tech bro into anime and techno. And I guess you could also say he's into extreme sports. This is an exchange between Zeke and Carly from her first visit to his apartment, when she asks about a glass sculpture he has on his coffee table. What's that? A volcano. I've always loved them. I'd like to fly into one sometime. Why? I don't know, it sounds like fun. Don't you think? The sculpture doesn't actually look much like a volcano. It looks more like a bunch of icicles welded together. Anyway, she's flattered by his attention and a little scared of him, but in a way that makes her more attracted to him. When they first have sex, he's seated and she's on top. And though you can't see his penis, for a few seconds, you do see the glass volcano in the background between them. Joe Esterhaus kind of wrote the same movie over and over again, with basic instinct notably flipping genders. Here, the screenwriter recycles the trope from Jagged Edge of a divorced career woman losing her mind a little bit when a super hot younger guy blows her mind in bed. But in this film, the deteriorated faculties feel more credible because the sex feels more overwhelming. Sharon Stone performs an orgasm here that feels both extremely convincing out of context and narratively appropriate in the context of her character's combined fear of getting involved and her compulsive desire to be loved and protected by men. Noyce conjures a vibe of catalog slick fear sex which owes somewhat to Sliver's blockbuster soundtrack. But I think most of the credit should go to Stone, who is giving a real performance here, and an incredibly vulnerable one. Viewers who came to this looking for Catherine Trammell too would have been not just disappointed, but confused. Because for most of this movie, Stone has a completely different kind of physicality. She hides in big coats. She's nervous about mundane interactions. As Stone put it, Catherine kept the men in line, but Carly is so fragile that it's easy for her to get stomped on and discarded. There is an inverse of the basic instinct interrogation scene in which, at a fancy restaurant, Zeke coerces Carly into proving that she's wearing a bra and panty set he gave her. Instead of using her pantylessness to confront a room full of men, a man goads her into exposing herself in a room full of strangers. Carly is both terrified and excited. 
She seems to like feeling powerless, seems to be consenting to submissive humiliation. And in her performance in this scene, Sharon Stone is truly unrecognizable as the same actress who we last saw with an ice pick under her bed. It's become knee-jerk to say that movies of this era couldn't be made today. But I weirdly think Sliver is actually in line with a lot of today's attitudes that supposedly scare filmmakers away from exploring sexuality on screen. In the same manner that Basic Instinct was a 90s update of Vertigo vis-a-vis the icy San Francisco blonde symbol of castration anxiety, Sliver is basically a 90s update of Gaslight. In Sliver, like in George Cukor's 1944 film, there is a haunted house, there are two men who are interested in a living woman who looks like a dead woman who is scared because her past has scarred her. She wants to submit to a domineering man for what she thinks is comfort and safety, but in both films, all he does is lie and manipulate her. There's even a common line of dialogue. In Gaslight, Ingrid Bergman goes to Lake Como to get away from Charles Boyer so she can think about his proposal. And he suddenly shows up uninvited when she's getting off the train and says, You're not angry with me. Angry? If you hadn't come, I should have sent for you. In Sliver, when Stone finds out Baldwin owns the apartment building and expedited her application, he says, I just thought we would like each other. You're not angry with me, are you? You can hear by Bergman's response the way that women were conditioned to see this kind of thing as flattering, a sign of love. It's actually a sign of love bombing. In Sliver, Stone's character simply doesn't answer. Noyce cuts from Stone's face, conveying confusion as to whether she should be angry or not, to her returning to her apartment and luxuriating in the memory of her night of hot sex with her potentially creepy neighbor. Which brings us to the ways in which Sliver handles voyeurism and consent. In their interactions, Zeke outwardly respects Carly's consent, but of course, as a secret voyeur, he's violating the whole building's consent. When he finally reveals his surveillance layer to Carly, it's under the guise of keeping her safe from creep novelist Jake. Carly is, at first, repelled by Zeke's video voyeurism and leaves. But then she comes back, and soon she's addicted to watching the monitors herself. When she and Zeke have sex in the command center, it's druggy and weird. Sliver is in dialogue with Body Double. Both are films in which the fetishistic desire to watch something you're not supposed to be seeing dovetails with crimes that need to be solved. The technology is updated for the 90s, and so is the morality. Zeke's monitors show a schoolgirl confessing to her mom that her stepdad is molesting her, and the mom disbelieving her. So Zeke intervenes, calling the stepdad and threatening him. He does this to make the case to Carly that in watching live video streams of all of their neighbors through hidden cameras, they're not doing anything wrong. And in fact, 
they could do some good. But Carly decides she isn't satisfied having hot sex under the narcotic influence of Zeke's panopticon. It's like playing God. We'll only do good things. I don't want to do this. I want my privacy. I want my own experiences. Zeke, I want to have a real relationship. Carly, I love you. You can have anything you want. I want my tape. If I have you, I don't need them, right? The big difference between Gaslight and Sliver is that Gaslight, set in the late 1800s, made in Hollywood in the 1940s in the midst of a production code that generally believed that a beautiful unmarried woman is a menace to society, can't imagine a world in which a woman could really stand on her own. Ingrid Bergman can't even recognize what Charles Boyer is doing until Joseph Cotton comes along and explains it to her and helps her get rid of him. The final frame of that movie suggests Ingrid is basically swapping a bad man for a supposedly nice one. But in Sliver, all men are bad, to one degree or another. And once Carly recognizes that Zeke is a creep, she has to get out of this situation on her own. She finds his gun and his secret tapes, which prove that Jake was the killer, but also prove that Zeke not only had sex with a dead lady that looked just like her, but also fed her and another now-dead neighbor the exact same lines about love and roses. Yes, literally roses. In what might be the most 90s ending to any movie of the decade, Carly shoots out Zeke's precious monitors and then turns to him, pointing not the gun, but the remote control. And in the last shot of the movie, with her finger on the trigger of the off button, she says, Get a life. This is not how Sliver was supposed to end. Remember Zeke's phallic glass volcano? Funny story about volcanoes. In the film's original scripted ending, Carly finds out that Zeke has killed a bunch of women from the apartment building, basically says she doesn't care, and then they fly a helicopter into a volcano together. This ending was cursed. When two cameramen were flown in an actual helicopter into an actual volcano to shoot footage that Stone and Baldwin would be green-screened into, the helicopter crashed, and the three men were lost for two full days. They still managed to get the footage noise needed, but test audiences hated the volcano ending, deeming it nihilistic, and Stone's character amoral. This was something of a shock given how much audiences seemed to love Sharon Stone as the killer in Basic Instinct. But Esther Haas said the test scores made it clear that he had gone too far this time. So he wrote, he claimed, 47 pages in 24 hours, encompassing three different possible endings, and just a few weeks before Sliver's set-in-stone release date, Noyce had to get the actors back for reshoots. 
Knowing these production details, critics and even gossip columnists pounced on Sliver's new conclusion. Liz Smith called it, quote, one of the most ludicrous and insulting film finales ever to be foisted on the paying customer. Carly's change from bleary-eyed zombie to double-fisting a gun and a remote feels abrupt for sure. But Bergman snaps out of it pretty fast in Gaslight, too. I wish I could see the volcano ending, but this one is pretty good. Especially when you think of Sliver as Sharon Stone apparently did, as an opportunity to take back control of her image as a sex symbol. Here, she's getting revenge, not just for the way her body was filmed without consent and basic instinct, but revenge on behalf of every woman who ever got suckered into having hot sex with a guy who they later realized was a gaslighting perv. I've always liked Sliver, and watching it for the first time in a while recently, I still liked it. There is some silly stuff in it, I can't believe the glass volcano, which is so much more glaring and tasteless when you know about the helicopter accidents. And there are so many double entendres involving the word come that you would think the script was punched up by Samantha from Sex and the City. But this is also a movie which centers a nearly middle-aged, single, working woman without feeling like it's judging her for being any of those things. Of all the movies we've talked about connecting sex with danger, I think Sliver is the sexiest and possibly the least sexist. I say all this knowing that the Sliver that we can see is not the Sliver that anyone thought they were making. After the break, the Frankenstein version of this film stumbled into theaters under several different clouds of bad press. And one of those clouds kept pouring rain for years. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. I frequently have this experience in therapy where I tell my analyst something that is happening or happened with someone else, and they ask me how I feel about it, and then they ask me if I have told the person in question how I feel, and a lot of the time my answer is nope because just telling the analyst is kind of enough. We all carry around different stressors, big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever is weighing you down. Everyone needs a sounding board. Just talking to a therapist about what's going on can make you feel better. Other times, a therapist can offer strategies or new ways to frame the difficulty you're having. Maybe you'll leave your session with action items that you can work on, or maybe just talking it through will give you the perspective you need to make changes. But therapy is a good first step to figuring that out. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, and it's designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com YMRT today to get 10% off your first month. 
That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash Y-M-R-T. Sliver began production in October 1992 and was set for release the weekend before Memorial Day as the unofficial kickoff to the 1993 summer movie season. Three months earlier, on Valentine's Day, the LA Times ran a report written by Ryan Murphy, most likely the future TV producer who was writing entertainment journalism at the time, announcing that Sliver planned to distinguish itself from the summer 1993 pack by showing lots of full frontal male nudity. This was controversial. Murphy quoted one anonymous studio exec as telling him, I don't know of one studio head who would greenlight a film that called for male frontal nudity. Another unnamed source said, Billy Baldwin does things in this movie that most male stars would never dream of doing. Without question, it's the sexiest leading man role ever written for the screen. When asked about it, director Noyce confirmed, quote, If you counted the square inches of flesh that are bared in the film, you could say that there are more male than female. I have never understood why in Hollywood, male screen sexuality is taboo, but female sexuality is not. At its core, it has something to do with the fact that men are in control. They're controlling the images of themselves and of women. And that's why we only see the women. Well, I didn't want to do that. This is a woman's story. Sliver may be Carly's story, but Carly is not in control of anything. In order to play a character that vulnerable, Stone used her newfound power to take charge. Before, she had submitted to Verhoeven's choreography and storyboards. Now, she pushed back against things Noyce or Esther Haas wanted her to do that she felt were unrealistic. During the bath masturbation scene, Stone remembered that the male filmmakers wanted her to be looking at a Calvin Klein cologne ad for erotic inspiration. To which she told them, women aren't like this. She also consulted with other women on set when she was shooting sex scenes, asking them to come look at the monitor. Sometimes reviewing it with some of the women gives me a little bit greater perspective sometimes less by what they say than what I see in their faces when they watch it. Post Verhoeven, she added, I have a writer in my contract that every frame of anything that's nude or sexual in any way, I get to see and approve, or it can't go into the picture. We don't know if Billy Baldwin had the same contractual stipulation. But exactly a month after Ryan Murphy's story, a different LA Times reporter, Jane Galbraith, offered an update. The amount of male frontal nudity in Sliver is shrinking. Noyce's most recent cut, according to a source who saw the film at a research screening last Sunday on the Paramount lot, offers zero frontal nudity of Baldwin, although a male extra who is in the buff does walk toward the camera at one point. What happened in that intervening month 
is that Paramount presented Sliver to the MPAA for rating. And they not only gave the movie an NC-17, but provided Noyce with a list of 110 changes they recommended if he wanted the R rating, which he was contractually obligated to deliver. Robert Evans didn't care about Noyce's contract, and he saw an opportunity to shake up the industry by refusing to make the changes. In a meeting at Paramount, Evans said, Fuck them. Let's just go for the NC-17. At the end of that meeting, Evans collapsed on the Paramount lot and was hospitalized for a massive anxiety attack. They did not go for the NC-17. Noyce ultimately made 15 cuts to get an R rating. Evans had recovered by two weeks before the release when he told the LA Times that it wasn't full frontal nudity that the MPAA had objected to. There are four scenes in the film that are totally original, Evans said. That originality may have taken the MPAA aback a little. Another source told the paper, In one of the first lovemaking sequences, you don't see two people in the missionary position in bed like you do in a daytime soap opera. It is done in a manner that the MPAA perceives as unconventional. At the Sliver premiere, when asked why Baldwin's nudity was cut and hers remained, Stone said, It's a man's world. There was never anything unacceptable in the first place. All the fuss over the rating was more of a publicity gambit than anything else. Reporters had to take Stone's word for it because Noyce, Berenger, and Baldwin were all absent from the premiere. Sources say that Baldwin pulled out of attending at the 11th hour, the LA Times reported, adding, no one even bothered to pretend that he and Stone got along during filming. With the reshoots and the MPAA-mandated changes, Noyce and his post team were working down to the wire. We shot the new ending about a week and a half before the movie came out, Noyce said. We started making prints of the film on a Tuesday, and they had to be on all the cinemas on the Friday. It was because of this crunch, Paramount said, that they weren't able to screen Sliver for critics until the day before it opened. The LA Times suggested they were hiding the film from critics. Quote, when that occurs, it usually means filmmakers are worried that negative reviews could diminish box office returns on the crucial first weekend. Let me tell you something about film critics, which I know from having been a film critic and also from having spent the last 30 plus years obsessively reading film criticism. If a studio has a film that they suspect critics won't like, and they screen it for them anyway weeks in advance, sometimes they can be in for a surprise. But if the studio screens the same film too late for newspaper critics to meet their deadline for a Friday review, then the studio can pretty much guarantee that the reviews will be negative because critics go in expecting a stinker. Sliver's reviews were scathing because of the rush factor, but also because it was extremely fashionable in that moment 
to at best condescend to Sharon Stone and at worst vilify her for her, shall we say, naked ambition. Citing another recent sexually explicit film which critics rolled their eyes at, in the LA Weekly, John Powers wrote, Sliver is damage without the inadvertent hilarity. If Sharon Stone's career ended today, the epitaph would read, Almost a star, she simulated more orgasms than Marla Maples. At that moment, Marla Maples was best known for having claimed that Donald Trump had given her the best sex she ever had. The meanest review I came across was printed in the Wall Street Journal. Quote, Sharon Stone, who had been kicking around Hollywood for years, became a superstar with basic instinct. As far as I can tell, the tour de force that made her the cover girl of the year was that astounding bit of method acting. Her willingness to allow the camera to peek up her skirt and find no panties. Having declared Miss Stone a superstar, the media may now feel compelled to destroy her. Though she really isn't what's wrong with Sliver. She does her best. She allows a breast to peek out. She lets us watch her make love to herself in the bath. Generally, critics ignored the fact that Stone gives an incredibly different performance in Sliver than in Basic Instinct. The fact that she appeared nude in both films was enough to flatten out any difference between the two films. In Entertainment Weekly, Owen Gleiberman wrote, Sliver makes you wonder, can Sharon Stone have an impact outside of mediocre sex thrillers? And can Hollywood remember how to make anything else? Sliver opened at number one for its weekend with $12 million. That was $3 million less than Basic Instinct had opened to just over a year before, and $6 million less than the opening of Indecent Proposal seven weeks earlier. That movie was still in the box office top 10 when Sliver opened, ranking sixth with $3 million. Sliver's release was set long before anyone knew what kind of staying power Indecent Proposal would have, but both films were rushed through post-production to make their opening dates. And judging by the reviews and comments made by its producers, Sliver obviously could have used more time in the kitchen. As Evans later put it, Paramount, quote, weren't interested in making Sliver good. They were only interested in making it for Memorial Day. One explanation for why the release dates were set so close to one another and not adjusted once it was clear that Sliver needed more time to cook is that Sherry Lansing was under enormous pressure to reverse Paramount's fortunes and fast. Another explanation was an ongoing tabloid story that threatened to prove more entertaining than the movie itself. 
it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. There was a lot of bravado to Stone's persona circa Sliver. In a movie line cover profile pegged to the release, she makes a lot of body jokes about her sex life and the common perception that she was as it would have been phrased in the 1990s, a man in a woman's body. Of the polo lounge, she says, there's nowhere else to go in good conscience to look at hookers. When the reporter says they should talk about women's issues, she responds, like, what kind of tampons I use? The story ends with this quote. My life is actually quite like Valley of the Dolls, except that I have better clothes and hairdos. I don't know what I'll call my expose about Hollywood, but I already have my opening sentence. The sex change operation wasn't nearly as painful as I had anticipated. For the record, that is not the opening sentence of Sharon Stone's actual memoir. But the idea that she lived her life the way a man would was one way that tabloids viewed Stone's role in the messy marriage scandal that began on the set of Sliver and bled into the press cycles of the next two years' worth of Hollywood erotic dramas. In an April 1993 cover story, People magazine reported that the quote-unquote shameless 35-year-old Basic Instinct star, was engaged to marry Bill McDonald, executive producer of Sliver. Quote, Of course, a few complications need to be worked out before the pair finalize their nuptials. McDonald moved in with Stone this year, just months after marrying his live-in love of eight years, to whom he is still legally wed. Joe Esterhaus would later say that the trouble started when Sharon Stone's psychic told her she and McDonald had been together in a past life. According to Esterhaus, Stone teased the producer with this information, but wouldn't sleep with him while he was still living with his wife, Naomi. Esterhaus claimed he told McDonald you can't fucking do this. Don't blow your marriage over this. But a few weeks later, McDonald had left his wife and proposed to Stone. When Sliver was still in production, the tabloid press started filling with stories fed to them by Naomi McDonald, accusing Stone of breaking up her marriage. Naomi even went on the tabloid TV show, A Current Affair. But by the time the movie was released, Naomi had moved on to Joe Esterhaus. This seems to date back to Easter 1993. Esterhaus, wanting to throw a bone to the woman McDonald had thrown over for Sharon Stone, invited Naomi to join he and his family on vacation in Maui. On that vacation, 
Joe and Naomi fell in love. While they were still in Hawaii, according to People magazine, quote, he spoke to his wife and then to his children. I've fallen in love with Naomi, he said. He left them, stunned and barely able to speak, and walked into Naomi's adjoining room at the Four Seasons Hotel. I love you, he announced. We're leaving. His agent then issued a press release announcing the separation of the Esterhases, including three words attributed to the highest paid writer in Hollywood. Quote, life is strange. I've seen this referred to as a love quadrangle in some reports, but if you include Esther Haas's 52-year-old wife, Jerry, to whom he was married for 24 years, I guess it's a love pentagram. If you add the guy Stone eventually left Bill McDonald for, an assistant director on the Quick and the Dead, does that make it a hexagon? When Maureen Dowd went to Robert Evans's house to interview Esther Haas a few weeks before the Sliver release, she found Naomi sitting next to him, wearing matching black leather. Esther Haas freely admitted to Dowd, It's certainly the most tangled situation that I've ever heard or read about. It seemed like they were still in the midst of untangling it in front of Dowd. As Naomi explained, You're hurt. You're devastated, and then you do something that hurts someone else in such a short period of time. To quote Dowd, Mr. Esterhaus interrupts to reassure her. What I'm trying to say to you, and it's really true, is that you didn't cause the problems in my marriage. She replies, but it still hurts. In his book, Hollywood Animal, Esterhaus described this tangled web as a sort of gift to him from Robert Evans, slash his karma for writing Basic Instinct. Here is a clip from the audiobook. I have no doubt that writing Basic Instinct helped speed up the end of my marriage to Jerry Esterhaus. Most young women I found had seen the movie. Some liked it. Others disliked it. But almost all of them were fascinated by and on some sexual level drawn to the man who wrote it. If I was a cheating husband before I wrote Basic, I became a kind of sexual stuntman after it was released in the theaters. It all led finally to what Evans considered his ultimate compliment. I saw the movie and thought, damn it, this cocksucker knows more about pussy than I do. I don't. No one will ever know as much as Evans. My advice to screenwriters, be careful what you write, because what you write can come back and rewrite you. Esther Haas writes extensively about the end of his marriage to Jerry and the beginning of his relationship with Naomi, to whom he is still married today. He also writes extensively about McDonald and his relationship with Stone. He even excerpts many pages from Naomi's diaries. Sharon Stone does not write about any of this in her memoir. Three names that do not come up ever at all in Sharon Stone's book are McDonald, Sliver, and Esther Haas. But she did talk about this stuff in the 90s. She was interviewed for the cover of Esquire magazine in 1995 
when she was in Las Vegas making casino. With her engagement to McDonald long since broken, she denied that she had been a tornado that had destroyed two marriages. In fact, between her and Bill McDonald, she said, it was the other way around. Quote, I didn't know him at all when I got involved with him. About six weeks in, I knew I was in serious hot water and told him so. I recognized how dangerous he was, like a whirling dervish of destruction. I explained to him that it was just going to have to stop. And it was about that time we got engaged, which was his attempt to be legitimate and make me legitimate. He was constantly working on me psychologically to make me feel like I was always in danger and weak and that without him constantly there, I was vulnerable. This is fascinating to read because the relationship she's describing is pretty much exactly the one her character has with Billy Baldwin's character in Sliver. Just as few seem to be able to see Indecent Proposal as a film about toxic masculinity because they were too distracted by whether or not the movie would encourage young women to have transactional sex, Sliver's depiction of 2023 hot topics like gaslighting and love bombing was ignored while the media went nuts over the anomaly of its actress's willingness to show her body. In response to their coverage of Sliver's battle to get an R rating and the removal of the film's male nudity, the LA Times ran an editorial by Sam Frank, the author of a 1986 book called Sex in the Movies. In his editorial, Frank called for the abolishment of the rating system on the grounds that it was corrupt as long as it was pay-for-play and made arbitrary determinations about sex scenes based on a nebulous concept of what was normal or conventional. Who are they to say what's unconventional, Frank wrote. These are 10 anonymous men and women, all parents or grandparents, who are paid to sit in visual judgment to determine if a given movie is suitable entertainment for children. They are not paid to censor content or pass moral judgment for an intended adult audience or keep visual content in lockstep conformity. And yet, they do. Frank continued, I have a simple, if radical, solution to these problems. Disband the rating board, let sexual content be unfettered, and compel the studios by law to self-rate movie ads for sex, violence, and language. We would thus make the studios responsible for information on the one hand, while making parents and adult guardians responsible for what their children see on the other. That would save the studio's money and finally give us the right to see what movie makers want to put on the screen. It sounds like a reasonable proposal, but what movie makers wanted to put on the screen was too often at odds with what the studios wanted. And this would increasingly be the case going forward. Sliver had led Us Magazine's 1993 summer movie issue, which had wrongly predicted that Sliver would tear off a big chunk of the box office. The magazine made a more accurate prediction in a sidebar headlined, Soft Focus. Quote, Warm and fuzzy has suddenly replaced sex and violence as the buzzwords at Hollywood pitch meetings. 
This vibe shift was attributed to the success of films like Dave and Sleepless in Seattle. The kicker was a quote from Columbia exec Mark Canton. A movie rated PG is almost three times more likely to reach $100 million than a film rated R. Any smart business person can see what we must do. That same year, that same executive made a dispiriting comment in Time magazine that suggested there would be no equality for equality's sake in Hollywood. Quote, It's been a long time since women have had any reliable impact on big box office. What this meant was that there were anomalous hits like Basic Instinct or Sister Act or A League of Their Own or Pretty Woman. But even Julia Roberts had yet to prove to male execs like Canton that she was worth banking on in the long run. Before Sliver came out, Premiere magazine had set the stakes for Sharon Stone. This is her first shot at carrying a movie, and the pressure is intense. Like it or not, she will be held responsible for the success or failure of Sliver. In the end, Sliver was not a success in the U.S., but its significant overseas box office kept it from being too bad of a failure. Stone still had arguably her greatest performance in Casino ahead of her. But she was a woman out of time, her stardom delivered by the most explicit R-rated film of its era, nearing the end of the R-rated blockbuster era. Next week, we will talk about two films centering female villains that represented the flip side of Stone's image. Instead of blonde bombshells, these were killer brunettes. Join us then, won't you? Thanks for listening to You Must Remember This. The show is written, produced, and narrated by Karina Longworth. That's me. This season is edited and mixed by Evan Viola. Our research and production assistant is Lindsay D. Schoenholtz. Our social media assistant is Brendan Whalen. And our logo was designed by Teddy Blanks. If you like the show, please Tell anyone you can, any way that you can. You can follow us on Twitter at RememberThisPod, and we're on Facebook and Instagram, too. And if you go to our website, you must remember thispodcast.com. You can find show notes for this and every other episode, which include lists of our sources and much more. At the website, you can also find merch like hats, t-shirts, and our special limited edition Dead Blondes coloring book. At patreon.com slash Karina Longworth, you can support the podcast, get lots of bonus You Must Remember This content, including scripts or transcripts of our full archive, and some glimpses into other aspects of my life. Proceeds from Patreon go to help pay all the people who work on the show named above. 
Finally, subscribing or rating and reviewing the show on Apple Podcasts can really help other people find it. So if you want to spread the word, that's a great way to do it. We'll be back next week with an all new tale from the secret and or forgotten histories of Hollywood's first century. Join us then, won't you? Good night.